Good morning. We're in 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, as Chris has already indicated. And my title for you this morning is this, Two Assurances for Christians. Two Assurances for Christians. This week is Palm Sunday, the day that is traditionally acknowledged as the day that initiates what we refer to as the Holy Week, which inevitably leads to the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Palm Sunday took place, as many of you already know, the Gospels tell us that there were people gathered together who were shouting around Jesus, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Unfortunately, by the end of that same week, many in that crowd constituted another crowd that were saying, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. And of course, as you well know, Jesus was crucified at the hands of a godless government. Next weekend for Easter, we'll be discussing in part what happens when we replace God with a government. But for this morning, our title is simply, Two Assurances for Christians. So without any further ado, I've got a lot to share with you. We're going to forego any longer introduction and begin with our first point. So if you're ready this morning, say amen. Amen. Our first point is simply the assurance of salvation. The assurance of salvation, the first of the two assurances that John gives to us in 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, are found in verse 13, and that is the assurance of salvation. First and foremost, as Christians, we who are in Christ, and we cannot relegate that prepositional phrase, in Christ, to any corner of our theology. It's an important teaching. Those who are found in Christ as Christians who both abide in God and have God abiding in them by virtue of God the Holy Spirit, we possess, you and I, whether or not we realize it, the assurance of salvation. Now, you know what assurance is. Assurance is defined as, quote, a positive declaration intended to give confidence. A positive declaration intended to give confidence. Synonyms include words like guarantee or confidence or expectation. As Christians, we have a guarantee. We have a confidence. We have an expectation of our eternal salvation. Let's look at the text again. You can look at it with your eyes as I read it aloud. It says, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This is an incredibly important verse for you, for me, and for the entire church. So I want to take it one step at a time and note a couple of things. First, John is writing to Christians. First of all, I want you to note that John is writing to Christians. I write these things, look at it with your eyes. I write these things to you who, what does it say? Believe in the name of the Son of God. Church, I want to say this humbly. 
but matter-of-factly. There is no biblical precedent for the assurance of eternal salvation other than that assurance that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no biblical precedent for the assurance of eternal salvation outside of Jesus. John isn't writing to just anyone. He's writing to believers. And he wants them to know, K-N-O-W, he wants them to know that they have assurance of salvation. And I want you to note, though, that what we've learned throughout 1 John cannot be forgotten. Here's a quick reminder. Christians are people who have repented, accepted Christ as God's one and only Son, and placed their faith in him and who strive to live a holy life as God the Holy Spirit abides in them. This is what constitutes a Christian to John. Notice, please, that the word evangelical doesn't appear here. We won't find it in the text. We're doing a little battle right now with a bunch of people who consider themselves smart who want to appear on the news and sell books and raise the volume of attention on their podcasts so that they can say things like evangelicals this and evangelicals that, as if Christ followers are actually represented under this umbrella term of evangelical. They're not. That might have been correct 60 years ago, but it's not correct today. In 2018, I wrote an article titled, Evangelicals in a Political World, Should We Employ Another Term? Because I saw the inevitable, namely that people who call themselves Christians and genuine Christians are all being put in the same camp, and that camp is called, guess what? Evangelical. So if you're not a Jew and you're not a Muslim and you don't believe that a woman should abort her child at nine months of pregnancy, you must be an evangelical. This is not a biblical definition of Christianity, but they use the term synonymously. Regardless of what the world says or what book titles say or what the mainstream media says, Christians, listen to me, church, amen if you're listening, Christians are followers of Christ. They listen to his word and they obey his will. Anything short of that will not do. You can evangelical all day long if you want to. It doesn't mean you're a Christian. First thing I want you to note in this text is that John is writing to believers. Believers in the Son of God. Second, I want you to note that John is writing with the purpose of assurance. John is writing with the purpose of assurance. He's not writing about the weather, church. A beautiful day here in South Florida. I don't know what you guys are doing. Very nice. It's sunny and 60. Might play golf today. No, just kidding. He's not asking them what movies they've watched lately on Netflix. Have you finished Downton Abbey yet? Yes, twice. (laughs) Of course. 
Longmire for my friend Jay. He's not asking them about these casual, mundane things, church. He's talking to them about something that's serious, something that's emphatic. He's talking to them, this apostle of Christ, to these believers about the assurance of salvation. In the first chapter, it was the physical reality of Jesus incarnate. We heard him, we saw him, we touched him. In the second chapter, it was the necessity of remaining separate from the world. He who loves the world cannot love the Father. 1 John 2.15. In the third chapter, it was the reality of love in action. 1 John 3.17. Let us not love in word, but in deed and in truth. In 1 John chapter 4, John reminded us of the preeminence of God's love. God loved us when? First. Now here in John, 1 John chapter 5, excuse me, John is talking about the two Christian assurances that we have because they are that important for us as Christians to know. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 says that the church is built, and I quote, on the prophets and apostles, and the chief cornerstone is Jesus Christ. I think that's why we have so many clowns running around today calling themselves apostles and prophets. We're prophets and apostles. No, you're not. To qualify as a prophet or an apostle, you have to receive direct revelation from Christ and have seen him post-resurrection. Nobody can claim that without doing LSD. We're talking about something miraculous that happened to a particular group of people. That group of people has stopped in existence. So there is no more foundation being added to what the church is constructed on. We are constructed on the apostles and the prophets and the chief cornerstone holding it all together is Jesus Christ. So when John, as the apostle, is saying, I want you to know the assurances that you have, he's laying down for us, church, say amen if you're listening, he's laying down for us something that is pivotal to our faith, something that's pivotal to our belief in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. In God's wisdom, he ordained the prophets and the apostles with Christ as the chief cornerstone, and this foundation cannot be subtracted from, and listen, It cannot be added to. Regardless of what liberal drift might be happening in our country and around the world in the name of Christianity. May God help us to love the old texts and to love the old ways. Amen? May God help us to love the beauty of the moral and ethical values that we find in the Word of God. May God help us to keep to those paths and those morals when modernity wants to force something else on us. We have to stop with this twisting of Scripture that says, love your neighbor and turn your cheek and say, no, that's not what God's Word teaches. And therefore, I will not let you walk all over me. 
because somebody has led you to believe that loving your neighbor means to compromise the truth. That's not Christianity. The fact that John says that he wants Christians to know, what does he want them? To know emphatically reminds us that sometimes whether or not we know something, our feelings can tell us otherwise. Whether or not we know something, our feelings can tell us otherwise, as in you may not feel like a great Christian, but still be saved. And on the other hand, you may feel like a pretty good person on the way to eternal judgment in hell. The Bible doesn't teach us to determine the status of things by our feelings. In fact, quite the opposite, following feelings above all else is a trait of the godless, unbelieving world. It's not what we do as Christians. It's what they do. I feel like this. Okay, well, let's, let's, let's have you do something to perpetuate those feelings. We see that today, don't we? There's a world out there that feels great. At least that's what they say. In fact, that's all they care about, how they feel. They don't care if their decisions wreck families. They just want to feel good. They don't care if their drunk driving kills someone. They just want to party and feel good and drive home in their own car. They don't care if their lifestyle and worldview ruins the future of our next generation. They just want to feel good and pass down what they determine to be good feelings to those kids. And on and on. We could do this for a while because we live in a world that is motivated by feelings. Nothing more than feelings. Right, wrong, just, unjust. It never enters into the equation. The simple question that needs to be asked by the world in order to motivate them one direction or another is, Will it make me feel good? To hell with the consequences. And not only do you and I have to give way, but we have to celebrate it. And if we don't celebrate it, we're called bigoted. And whatever phobia they decided to find in Webster's Dictionary that day. And if the worst thing that happens to you as a follower of Christ is somebody calls you phobic about this, that, or the other thing, praise God, man. Big deal. We've got brothers and sisters in Christ without Bibles, one page of a Bible meeting in a dark corner in an alley somewhere just to pray and praise Jesus, and we can't get people to show up at 1045 in air conditioning. Well, we get people showed up, and they, and they show up because it's cool outside, and they go, it's so cold in the building today. <laughs> Jack says, it's refreshing. We find a lot of things to complain about, church. 
in view of the fact that our brothers and sisters in Christ would give literally an appendage to be in the blessed circumstances that we enjoy every single day but take for granted. The world is going to do whatever it feels like doing. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, that is Jesus. And of this he has given assurance. There's the word again. Of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's the only assurance God has given this world that is led by emotions and feeling and whimsical thought. The only assurance that God has given this world is, I'm going to judge you. You will be judged. The unbelieving world, the unrepentant world will be judged. That is the only assurance that's been given by God. But we as Christians, say amen. We as Christians have been given two assurances, and that's the assurance of salvation. We will not in any form or fashion come under judgment. And the assurance of answered prayer, which we'll get to in a moment. Now, I want to say this before our second point. I'm not going to say something idiotic like, your feelings don't matter. Doesn't matter how rational you are. If you have a wife, you know feelings matter. You fellas better say amen to that one. Only me standing up here by myself, man. I'll talk to you in the foyer. I'll talk to you after the service, man. God has made us, church, God has made us mental and emotional beings. Men and women. I say that as a joke and we laugh, but the truth of the matter is, is we see a lot of men who are emotionally dealing with life because they talk to no one. They find a chair that they won't share with anybody, and they watch a show on a TV that they won't share with anybody. That's them dealing with their emotions. Because we as a society have not taught men how to deal with their emotions. There's nothing wrong with being emotional. Being emotional is part of what it means to be created in the image of God. The problem is when we allow our emotions to dictate our course of action. That's the problem. The problem is when we allow our feelings to rule and run our lives because emotions, listen to this, emotions refuse to listen to reason. They won't listen to reason. But God has called us to love him with all our mind. So we may feel this way one day or feel that way another day, but are we loving the Lord our God with all our minds? Sometimes we don't do what we should because we don't feel like it. And sometimes we do what we shouldn't do because we feel like it. And God says, yeah, bro, that's backwards. Your feelings should be following your reason. Your reason should not be following your feelings. 
So don't misconstrue what I'm saying here. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you will, K-N-O-W, know that you have eternal life. That's the assurance that we have. But John is not saying it's wrong to have feelings. John is not saying it's wrong to be emotional. So let's not think that one thing equates the other. That leads us to our next point, and that is this. Not only do we learn about the assurance of salvation in verse 13, but following that in verses 14 and 15, we learn about the assurance of answered prayer. The assurance of answered prayer. Now, if you would, please look at the text again. I'll begin reading aloud as you read with your eyes. Verse 13 says, I write these things to you who, what? Believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, K-N-O-W, that you have eternal life. Here it is. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Secondly, We don't only see the assurance of salvation in this text, as I've mentioned in verse 13. We also see the assurance of answered prayer. Now, we just finished about a 15-week study on Wednesday nights on prayer, so some of this might be a recapitulation for some of you, a bit of a refresher. But still, there's a lot of incredible things that we can learn from this text. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we also know, I'm sticking also in there, but this is what he's saying, we also know that we have the request that we've asked of him. A couple of things I want you to note. First, our prayers should be according to his will. Our prayers should be according to his will. This is the confidence we have before him. It says, if we ask anything, what? According to his will, he hears us. Now, I want to say this at the outset. Obviously, this doesn't mean that if we pray to God, Something that isn't according to his will, he can't hear us. There isn't something weird going on with God, like God, like a like a divine deafness. Like, bro, I was talking to you. He's like, oh, you must have been saying something that I I don't agree with because I didn't hear a thing. Like when Dimey says, You think we can get this done today? And on the other side of the house, and I and I I play like I didn't hear her. (laughs) Oh, I didn't even hear you. Right? Do you want to go to Publix with me? I'm like, let me pray about it. (laughs) This is not that. There is never a time, church, when our God becomes deaf. Never. He always hears the prayers of people, particularly the prayers of his people. There isn't a mysterious divine deafness. But what John is saying here is that God is under no obligation to answer your prayers when your prayers are not in accordance with his will. His will, not yours. You remember that prayer in Gethsemane when Jesus was going to be crucified? He said, man, if there was another way we could do this, that was disrespectful, wasn't it? Father... 
If there is another way, nevertheless, not my will, Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. So when we pray our prayers, are we praying prayers in accordance with God's will? Let me share with you a couple of verses here we, to enforce this. Positively, we see it in Psalm 37.4. In Psalm 37.4, we read this, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. We have a lot of people here, and probably a number of people online as well, who are hoping for something, but not in accordance with the will of God. When that's the case, John is teaching us, don't expect an answer positively, because what you're asking isn't in accordance with the will of God. So positively, we see, delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Why would God give us the desires of our heart? Well, the first part answers that question. Because you've delighted yourself in the Lord. If God is your delight, if God is your joy, if God is your everything, then the requests you make to him are going to be a reflection of the fact, get this, that he's your joy. You're not going to him like a genie. Not the Will Smith genie, because if he gets upset, you know, that might not go well. You know what I mean? Man, he, he lucked out with Jada. Let me, that woman's got him crazy. Anyway, I digress. Not, not that kind of genie. God is not a genie. God fulfills his will. And he has ordained that he will accomplish his will this is huge. Through the prayers of his saints. How does it make you feel that God has ordained to accomplish his will through the prayers of his people? That's a bit intimidating, isn't it? Doesn't it make you go back and go, oh man, what have I prayed for this week? Or what haven't I prayed for this week? Positively, the word of God says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Negatively, Proverbs 15.29. Negatively, Proverbs 15.29 says this, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. So whether it's a positive affirmation or a negative affirmation, the message is the same. If you are in the will of God, you can ask whatever you want, you're going to get it. That seems a little brazen. Brother, that's scripture. Maybe you need to get a little brazen. We're going to talk about that. Church, we can't emphasize this enough. It's an important point. There is no assurance of answered prayer when it is made outside of the will of God, we might say outside of Christ. When we pray, as we do as Christians, in Jesus' name, we are following the biblical model because to pray in Jesus' name is to say, 
according to your will. It would be crazy if we pray something that is completely not a reflection of God's will and finish it with, in Jesus' name. It's not a magic formula, church. It isn't like, you know, I asked for this and I asked for that and I want it now, in Jesus' name. That's not the way it works. You might might believe that if you're watching it on television. You might believe that if you're listening to the name it and claim it movement, the prosperity gospel. But that is not what's in the scripture. What's in the scripture is this. You're not sovereign. God is sovereign. And you answer to him, not the other way around. So when we pray in Jesus' name, we're saying, God, may it be according to your will. And may I be in your will. Second, our prayers should lead to a confident life. You want to look at your Bibles again. In verse 15, it says, And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. This is an incredible verse. And this is the confidence we have, he says. And he continues, we know that the requests we've asked of him, we receive. It's pretty incredible for John to say, whatever your request is, you receive. Presuming, of course, that it's what? According to his will. This idea of confidence is a word in the Greek that means boldness. What's it mean? Boldness. Boldness. This is, this is when the kids come to us as parents and they go, yeah, we want this. There's no hesitation there because they know their parents love them and give to them and oversee their lives and watch for them and guard them and provide for them and protect them on and on and on. So why would they hesitate to come to us? Amen. So Jesus says when he say when the disciples come to him and they go teach us how to pray. He says, when you pray, pray like this, our father in heaven. When we approach our God, we need to remember that he's our heavenly father. He's not just our father, which is inviting intimacy and relationship, which we should have and possess, but he's also heavenly, which should remind us of the awesomeness of our father. So we don't casually run up to him and say, I need new sneakers. And neglect the fact that he's transcendent and sovereign and heavenly. But we also should not have a view of God that has him so transcendent that we forget he's our dad, our heavenly father. That balanced church is an important ingredient to a healthy and confident prayer life. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 emphasizes the point that we're making, namely that confidence and boldness go together. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, for example, says, Let us then with confidence. Same word in the Greek as John used in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, confidence. And what does confidence also mean? Boldness. Let us then with boldness draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive. Receive what? May we receive mercy 
and grace in the time of need. You got needs? You got needs? We all got needs. Scriptures tell us, go to God boldly. Go to God boldly in the name of Jesus because his throne is known by mercy and grace and you will receive what you need in that time. Get this, regardless of how we feel, don't limp to the throne of God. Regardless of how you feel, say amen if you're listening, don't limp to the throne of God. Don't hesitate to go to the throne of God. You say, bro, you don't know what kind of sin. It doesn't matter. I know a guy who was on the cross. He couldn't do any good works. And Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise because he had faith in the son of God. He said, I need to get my life straight before I start this prayer thing. No, man, the prayer thing will get your life straight. Go boldly to the throne of grace and mercy, and you will receive what you need in that time. Go boldly, but humbly. Go confidently, but not arrogantly. In our Christian life of prayer, we know that God hears us because we're praying according to his will in the name of Jesus. And that should lead us to live a life of confident prayer. Brother, how often have you been in a situation, maybe you're sharing with someone, maybe it's a problem you're having with your spouse or your kids, maybe it's a problem with your career, maybe you're in between jobs, Lord knows that's happening right now in our season of our country, in our economic situation. Maybe you don't have as many hours as you did before. Whatever the situation that you might be facing might be, wouldn't it be great if someone is hearing you talk, complain, vent, and then go, brother, let me pray for you right now. Not, I'll pray for you. I'll add you to my list. Nothing wrong with that. But wouldn't it be great in that moment, you're like, oh, you have an issue? You're dealing with this with your husband or with your wife or this is, your kids are going through this or, or you've got this going on at work? Say no more. Let's pray right now. I think that's what he's saying. Go confident. Don't, don't, I'll do it later. No, pray right now. Do it right now. It doesn't have to be this long, drawn-out thing. You roll out a carpet and light a candle. Just go, God, you've heard what this, what's on the heart and mind of this brother or sister, and I pray that you meet their need. We know you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. Done. Confidently go to the Lord because he has what we need. But if we don't go in prayer, we forfeit the riches of his grace. I want to share with you a verse I love, Psalm 116, verse 1. Psalm 116, verse 1. I love the Lord, he says, because he has heard my voice. How good is that? How many of you, by the way, I have problems with Christians who can't say, Jesus, I love you. I know people who have been Christians, and we can put that in air quotes. I'm, no, I'm nobody's judge. And they have never said, Jesus, I love you. The psalmist says, I love the Lord. I love the Lord. Because when I prayed, what's he say? He hears me. 
That's just one reason to love the Lord. There's a lot of reasons to love God. You can love God for his creative abilities. When you see that sunset and you're like, wow, it's amazing. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Lord, I love you for your creativity. Redemption. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Je- Jesus. I love you because I'm not condemned. There's a lot of reasons to love the Lord, but do you love the Lord? Well, how do we do this? I want to mention three things for you. Number one, you need to make sure you're a Christian. You want to go confidently to the throne? You want to talk to God with some boldness? Number one, make sure you're a Christian. That is to say, make sure you're in Christ. You say, what does that mean, Joe? Well, to be in Christ, John says, means to believe that Jesus is God's son, that he died on the cross for our sins so that we might have eternal life. That's what it means to be a Christian, number one. Number two, Not only do you need to make sure that you're a Christian, but number two, make sure that you're repentant of your sins. Psalm 20, it says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. When you approach God, you want to do it with confidence and boldness. Amen? Make sure you're not carrying your sins up there with you little convicting, isn't it? Make sure you're not bringing to the throne of grace things that you know don't belong there, unless you're bringing them to say, Lord, I don't want this in my life. I'm repenting of these things. Thirdly, make sure that what you're praying isn't selfish, but God-honoring. You can pray whatever you want. You can ask the Lord for whatever you want. doesn't mean you're going to get it. But we can get everything we ask for if it's God-honoring, if it's in his will. That's the promise of Scripture. With these truths in hand, these three truths, make sure you're a Christian, make sure you're repentant, make sure you're praying according to his will. With these truths in hand, I'm convinced that so many of the troubles that we see in people's lives would be boiled down to nothing. We have so many that are lacking the assurance of salvation and are lacking the confidence that God gives to us in prayer because they are not focused on one of these three things. If you know that you're eternally saved and if you know that God has given you permission to boldly and confidently approach him in prayer, that he hears you and will answer you in the affirmative, Church, let me ask you a question. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? This is a testament to our stubbornness, isn't it? Friends, if you want assurance and confidence in your life, these are the two things that God has given to us through his apostle John. If you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Number one, you know you have eternal life. And two, 
If you ask anything in his name, you will receive it.